You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Morning, everybody. Uh, It's interesting to be up here looking out at everyone and all of you looking at me. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at uh, Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. So if you want to turn in your Bibles with me, we'll start with reading it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in and see how it goes. How about that? All right, so Matthew 13, verse 31 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. If you'll pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, this morning for the gift of your church, um, the joy to come and worship together, uh, to proclaim your goodness. Um, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would see your goodness and your glory more fully, uh, Lord, and that our hearts would be humbled by it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, see scripture rightly uh, and to receive it in our hearts, that we would pray that your kingdom would come uh, and that we would seek it out in our lives. Um, Lord, so be with us as we look at this text and uh, help me as I uh, get through it. Uh, In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So good morning. Uh, this is the first time I've ever done this. It's an honor to be up here in front of you to preach today, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven to you this morning, as revealed in these three little verses from the book of Matthew. Uh, like I said, it's the first time I've ever done this, and I have to say it's been tough. Uh, thanks for bearing with me as I stumble through this with you all this morning. All I can say at this point is, Lord, help me. <laughs> when I first read this text, I thought the parable seemed pretty straightforward. But my simple first understanding began to unravel the deeper I looked at the parables. In some ways, the parables are simple and straightforward. They clearly show that the kingdom of heaven starts from something small, almost imperceptible, and grows beyond our expectations. Where the twist comes in is that the illustrations that Jesus uses would have had surprising countercurrent narratives to what the crowd was thinking that the kingdom would be like. These two parables are about surprising, small, humble things that grow and spread with little effort. Even while writing this sermon about how God's kingdom is like small, humble things, I was fixated on the belief that if I just worked hard enough at writing it, it would all come together and would be a good sermon. If nothing else, these parables in this sermon have reminded me the hard way that I need the mercy of the Lord. I can't do anything without him. Even in asking for his help with this sermon, I realized that what I meant was, please help me write a sermon that other people will think is good. (laughs) When what I should have been praying was, please help me write a sermon that glorifies you, even if it's terrible. (laughs) So I'm not sure which camp I'm going to fall in today. Uh, (laughs) But my heart is at peace uh, or or rest knowing that uh, I finally got to the point of being able to pray that second prayer last night uh, in the 11th hour, so to speak, probably like the 15th hour, really. Um, if that existed, uh, 
So anyway, he finally helped me get around to praying that prayer. My default position is that I want to be on the throne of my own heart, not Jesus. If I have to bet, that's yours too this morning. Uh, so in that sense, we're probably in the same boat. Even if you know the Lord and love him, it's so easy to want what we want and disregard what he wants. That is one of the things Jesus is pointing out to us in these parables. And I hope that if nothing else, as we look at these parables, you will honestly ask, do you want the kingdom of heaven to come in your life in the way that the Lord would do it? Or do you want it in the way that you would do it? If the answer is your way, all we can do is repent and profess our love for God anew and remind ourselves of his goodness. With that being said, let's dive in. These parables come to us in the midst of Matthew chapter 13, a chapter full of parables telling a crowd of people what the kingdom of heaven is like. These parables help us see the kingdom of heaven rightly and invite our hearts to respond to the true reality of this kingdom in humility, repentance, and worship. The main point of these two little parables is how the kingdom of heaven begins and spreads in small, surprising, maybe even unwanted ways. So the parable starts off with the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So the first question when I came to the text is, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? You know, what would the, what would Jesus's audience have heard uh, when, when he said this phrase? Um, I'm going to attempt just to do a real quick little definition of that so that we know when he says it's like a mustard seed, what is he comparing to the mustard seed? A simple definition would be that the kingdom of heaven is wherever God rules and reigns. So when Jesus says the kingdom is near, what he means by that is that his rule or reign is here, uh, that he is the king and he has come. Uh, his kingdom has been inaugurated. Uh, we see what God's kingdom looks like through the life of Jesus, and we look forward to God's kingdom coming in completeness when he returns. So Jesus's reign has begun, and with it, he, he comes proclaiming, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus's ministry, included, including his teaching and miracles, is all meant to drive people to repent and believe the good news that God the Father is seeking to reconcile sinners to himself through his son, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus has been drawing crowds for a while at this point in Matthew, and at least some of the crowd are asking whether or not he is the long-awaited Messiah who will establish the throne of David forever. The answer, of course, is that he is, but not the way they think. A good number of people in the crowd are make Israel great again kind of people. Uh, they're in the camp of looking for a Messiah who's going to come and overthrow the Roman rule and establish God's kingdom on earth, one with, with borders and wealth and Jewish identity and uh, a people that are recognized by all the world as being the people of God. Um, they're looking for an earthly kingdom to come in that sense. When Jesus fed the 5,000 with two loaves and five fish, he actually had to retreat to the mountain because in John, it says that the, the, uh, he had to go to the mountains to keep the crowd from taking him by force and making him king. When John the Baptist asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered him by saying, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus didn't have to answer him directly. He didn't just say, yes, I am the one that you look for. He said, look at what I do and judge for yourself. The proof was in the pudding, so to speak. Even though the ministry spoke for itself, you still had this broad range of opinions among the Jews about him. Some wanted to make him king, 
while just a chapter previous in Matthew, uh, Jesus offends the Pharisees so badly that it says, and they went out and they plotted to destroy him. Right? So you have people that want to set him up as king. You have people that want to destroy him. You have people that say he's a prophet. Uh, you have people who say he's a demon-possessed man, a lawbreaker, a sinner. Uh, and then you have people who say he is the Messiah. Um, and so when Jesus uh, comes today uh, saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like, he's speaking to this group, this motley group of people. Okay. We don't know exactly who was in the crowd, but you know, immediately before this in Matthew chapter 12, he's sitting in a house teaching the people. He's had a long day of preaching right before that. He's rebuked the Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers. Um, you know, not, so when we come to this text, like, you know, I, I tend to think, oh, this is such a cute little saying. Jesus is so good at saying cute things. And it's like, well, that's not really who he is. Like he just called people brood of vipers and they plotted to destroy him. Now that's a dangerous man, not uh, and just a cute little guy sitting in a boat preaching to people. So with, with that context, uh, that background sort of, you know, what I, what I wanted to do was try to hear the parable in the way that the crowd would have heard it. Okay. Um, and not just jump to a conclusion, you know, the, the kind of simple answer is, well, the kingdom of heaven starts small and it gets big, right? That's in the text itself. And that is part of the point. Um, but it's not the way we think it is. Okay. And so I stumbled into this or kind of like went down a, a rabbit hole. If you know me or have ever been to my house, you know, I like plants. Okay. So I got a parable with a plant in it. So the first question I ask, well, what is this plant? I don't really know what mustard is, to be honest, but it says it's like a tree. Okay. So I have in my head, all right, well, I know what trees are. They're like pine trees, oak trees, olive trees, apple trees, you know, nice, beautiful, big trees that birds can live in. All right. I get it. But when I actually started looking what mustard is, okay. Uh, so the king, so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And so I went and looked, okay, well, what is mustard? All right. Well, mustard is not like that at all. It's not at all what I thought it was. Okay. It's, uh, it's in the same family as broccoli and kale. Okay. It's, it's a, it's a plant that starts growing in mid to late winter and by midsummer it's dead. Um, it's, it grows rapidly, but you can break it with a hand, you know, with a single hand, you can snap all of its branches. Um, it has beautiful, uh, yellow flowers that bloom. Uh, it, it normally only grows two to four feet tall, but Jesus here says it's like a tree. Okay. And so normally it grows wild on the hills in Palestine, Israel. Uh, at this point it's all over the world, right? Which is a cool picture of the gospel. But, uh, most of the places where it's gone, it's considered a noxious invasive weed. Okay. <laughs> so 44 of the 48 United States have it listed as a weed, an invasive plant. So, with all that said, uh, you know, when Jesus says his rule and reign is like a mustard seed, you know, it, and it grows into a tree, the initial thought that I had coming to it, that's not it at all. It's not, it's not a tree like I imagined. It's just this big shrub. Yeah, it does have a small beginning, but it gets really big. Um, so, you know, in this parable, one of the things that it says is that a man takes the mustard seed and plants it. All right. So it's not just a wild mustard, but it's deliberately planted. Uh, in that circumstance, it can get pretty big. It can get 10, 12 feet tall. Uh, I have a couple quotes uh, for us just to help kind of paint that picture. So you understand sort of what I'm talking about better than I can say it. Uh, the first, it's pretty cool. Pliny the Elder, uh, he was a Roman general. Uh, he died when Pompeii exploded. Okay. 
And so this just reminds me, and this is, these are real people in a real history. This is a real Jesus sitting in a real boat talking to real people on the shore, okay? Uh, Pliny the Elder says, Mustard, it grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has once been sowed, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. He wrote that in the world's first encyclopedia in 73 AD. Another quote from 1884 regarding mustard that had been brought to California by Spanish missionaries. Uh, California's climate is pretty similar to Israel, so we can maybe draw some inferences there. They say the plant is a tyrant and a nuisance, the terror of the farmer. It takes riotous possession of a whole field in a season, once in, never out. For one plant this year, a million the next. But it is impossible to wish that the land were freed of it. Its gold is as distinct a value to the eye as the nugget gold is in the pocket. Mustard loves to grow in areas of disturbed earth. It's commonly found in roadside ditches, riverbanks, and notably plowed fields where you don't really want it. This reality would not have been lost on Jesus's first century audience. They wouldn't have thought, oh, mustard seeds are so cute. And wow, do they get big? That is just like the kingdom of heaven. That's not, I don't think that's what they would have said. Um, Their response probably would have been more like, disappointment and disapproval. You mean the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed? This is a proverb we use to say how small something is. And you're saying this, this big, amazing kingdom that's coming is, is like a, the tiniest little proverb that we use. That doesn't really make any sense. They probably would have uh, been disapproving of any of their neighbors that went and planted it in their field. Cause it's like, that's not a very practical thing to plant. It's going to take over. Steve's a farmer. He's probably got things that want to do that. Uh, <laughs> A little mustard is nice with your meat, but it's not very practical to plant it. So when Jesus says this, he's not inviting people to participate in a practical moral religion that will bring about the kingdom of heaven through their great effort. He paints a picture of a man carrying the lightest of burdens, a mustard seed, a seed that grows without effort and spreads freely, that takes over the landscape and bears abundantly, a tree that lives but six months and can be broken with a single hand. Jesus's kingdom will come through small and humble beginnings. He told them another parable. The kingdom, of he- the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This little parable is like the first. Again, we see the kingdom start small and grows to a much larger size. The three measures of flour here would be equal to 144 cups of flour. It would make around 75 pounds of bread. Okay, so it's a lot of flour. You know, we, we're, it's lost on us in three measures of flour. We don't know what that is, but 144 cups. So you need it. You need a really big kitchen aid to mix that up. Uh, and here we have a woman mixing it in, hiding it in the flour, hiding the leaven in the flour. If you don't know what leaven is, leaven is uh, what the Jews used. Um, if you've ever made bread, you know, you've added a yeast starter or something like that. So the, the, the Jews would have taken a little bit of sourdough that had already been leavened and set it aside and then they would use it to start their next batch. So it's just yeast grow, Yeast is everywhere. It's wild. Um, and so you put flour on your countertop, you put a little water in it. You'll probably get some yeast growing. Could go rancid or it might give you something that can make bread. So, you know, there's a risk there, I guess. Uh, so Jesus again uses an illustration that may have seemed wrong or foolish to his listeners. Leaven was almost always used in teaching and illustrations as a negative thing. Not only was it negative, but it wasn't something substantial in and of itself. The Jews had to purge their home of it every year at Passover, right? So in scripture, unleavened bread is called the the bread of contrition, the bread of humility. Um, They they ate unleavened bread 
in remembrance of the Lord's deliverance, right? It was a, it was a act of obedience to them. Leaven was commonly thought of as symbolizing pride, the proclivity of man's heart to sin, to grow great and thinking of himself because it was this little thing that puffed up, you know, puffed up the bread. Um, it's not always like that in scripture, but that's the only other way we see it used in the New Testament is that it's, it's used as an image of a negative thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. To make the illustration even more shocking, Jesus compares the rule and reign of God to a woman mixing leaven in three measures of flour. Hebrew women were better off than their pagan neighbors were, but they still were second-class citizens in Israel. Uh, the rabbinic teaching at the time, you know, you weren't supposed to talk to a woman in public if you were a man. You know, that's why when Jesus talks to the Samaritan at the well, it's like, what's going on here? Yeah, is he talking to her? It would have been pretty shocking. But not only is a woman featured in the parable, but she's an active participant, an active positive agent working the kingdom of heaven into the story. And so the listeners would have been put off by the leaven. Okay, well, that's not what I thought he would say. That doesn't seem right. And then there would be like, a woman's going to bring about the kingdom of heaven? That's definitely, we need an army full of men to throw the Romans down. You know, this would have been a kind of a off-putting thing. Uh, so both the mustard seed and the leaven illustrate that the kingdom is not what Jesus's audience was expecting. Jesus's kingdom is one of smallness and humility. It's an inverted kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. A kingdom where the poor in spirit are blessed and the meek inherit the earth. A kingdom of repentance that even welcomes thieves, tax collectors, prostitutes. A kingdom where the king is crowned with a crown of thorns and declared the king of the Jews at his resurrection. It's a kingdom, I'm sorry, declared the king of the Jews at his crucifixion. It's the kingdom of resurrection. How then should we respond to these parables? First, we should humble ourselves and remember that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts so that we may welcome the kingdom of heaven, even when it is offensive or impractical to us. The question you and I should ask ourselves is, do you pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done honestly? Or do you really want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or do you really want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, no matter what it may look like? Do you want to worship him and keep him on the throne of your heart daily or just sometimes in some things? Do you believe that in his presence there is fullness of joy or are you looking for joy elsewhere? Do you submit to his rule and reign in your life? He is the king, you know. In the same way that mustard and the leaven take over where they grow, will you embrace the rule and reign of Jesus in every aspect of your life? Will you let it take over? Uh, it's a scary thing to not know what the Lord might ask of you to do. And so when we pray, when Jesus told us, hey, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he's inviting us to humble our hearts to whatever it is that the Lord would do. Um, you know, I shared at the beginning that my idea of a good prayer and preparing for a sermon was to help me preach a good sermon, you know, and that's one that y'all would think was good. But what if the Lord wanted me to stand up here and preach a sermon that y'all thought was bad? You know, would I be willing to do that? Uh, and the answer is probably not, but the Lord in his mercy you know, helped me get until I couldn't back out, uh, you know, before I realized that might be what he wants me to do. <laughs> And have to be okay with that. So in the same way that the mustard and the leaven... Oh, I already said that. All right. 
Sorry about that. <laughs> An illustration for you. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, it's in, it's this, it's, it's the story of Naaman's healing. It's in second Kings five. Uh, I'm going to read verse one through four and then nine through 19. Uh, so Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elijah said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God, but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. May the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. The Lord, <laughs> there's a bunch of things about this that are awesome. But the Lord started naming on the road to repentance by using the small words of a kidnapped Hebrew girl that said, if my, if my master would just go to the prophet in Israel, he could be healed. You know, like a little girl that had been taken from her land says this to, his, to her mistress. Naaman's pride almost led him to reject the easy directions for healing that the prophet offered. But ultimately, Naaman obeyed the command of the prophet and was healed of his leprosy. Naaman responded rightly and let the healing lead him to repentance and to worship God. Naaman committed to worship the Lord and the Lord alone for the rest of his life. He even took home soil, presumably to build an altar for the Lord. I love this story. Naaman is the least likely person you'd expect to be healed by God. The Lord uses the words of a kidnapped Hebrew girl to lead the general of the armies of Israel's enemy to be healed and led to repentance so that he might go home to Syria and worship God. My natural mind would expect God to strike down a man like Naaman, you know, a man of pride and violence. Uh, but God shows him mercy and grace and God is glorified in it. The reality is that all of us are born with a leprosy of our own not to the flesh, but of the heart. Thank God that he is still healing lepers today through the blood of Jesus. Lepers like me, lepers like you. None of us deserve the mercy and grace of God any more than Naaman did. 
But that is exactly the point. It's a gift that is freely given to those who receive it. The invitation is simple. It's small. It's humble. It comes like a mustard seed. It comes like leaven hidden in flour. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The most beautiful small beginning any of us can have is to repent of our sin and trust in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of our hearts. May we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done with sincerity, always being willing to embrace what our Heavenly Father would have us to do. Our Father doesn't want you to do a mighty work for Him. He doesn't need you to do that. He didn't need Naaman to do it. Naaman would have done it. Our Father just wants you. He doesn't need what you can bring Him. He just wants you. Uh, there's a quote here from Spurgeon. That I'm going to read Charles Spurgeon. He says, God accepts your little works if they are done in faith in His dear Son. God will give success to your little works. God will educate you by your little works to do greater works. And your little works may call out others who shall do greater works by far than ever you shall be able to accomplish. Every day we are invited to participate in the kingdom of heaven. Just to remind you, the kingdom of heaven is just where the Lord rules and reigns. So anytime the Lord is on the throne of our hearts, we're participating in the work of the kingdom, whether it's folding laundry or just working at your job or talking to your neighbor or praying for a friend. Uh, if the Lord is on the throne, you're doing kingdom work. Uh, so let us, the Lord calls us to do these simple things in his name and to give him glory for it. Let us not neglect the work that is before us, no matter how small it may be. And let us not hold back parts of our lives uh, from being touched by the kingdom of God. I'm going to close by reading 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you'll pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to boast in you only. And Lord, to boast in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, to not look to our own efforts and our own abilities to advance the kingdom. That we would embrace the unexpected things, the unexpected ways, the unexpected people that you use. Uh, to, to, to bring your kingdom uh, into its fullness. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that we play a, an important role in your kingdom as your sons and your daughters. If anyone's not uh, yet in your kingdom this morning, Lord, I pray that they would repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. Uh, help us to seek first your kingdom with an open heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.